thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran. We lined up for the target and let their bombs out, and then we got a hit on hit on the nose. I don't know how much time I had, but the crew was jumping out of the pilot's exit, and I'm going to go out the window as soon as I see the crew leaving. Hello and welcome to the Fighter Pilot Podcast. I'm your host, Vincent Aiello, and this week you are in for a treat. You're going to hear from one of the few remaining members of the greatest generation. Art Palmer is a man who flew 50 bombing missions and a B-24 Liberator over Europe before being shot down and spending the rest of World War II as a guest of the Germans. And Art lives up in the Pacific Northwest, where my occasional guest host, Matt Arney, also lives. And he conducted the interview and joins me now. How's it going, Flounder? It's going great, Jello. I'm enjoying life up here, and I was really happy to spend some time with Art Palmer, so it's been good. Well, I want to dig in all that, but first, it's been a little while since you've been on the show. Anything new in your world? Well, you know, we're kicking off 2024 strong, looking forward to lacrosse season with the boys, and we got scout stuff going on and trying to get some skiing in, so, so all good things up here. Glad to hear it. Yeah, we don't have a whole lot of skiing too close to San Diego, but... We do have shorts and t-shirt weather pretty regularly, so that's a good thing. Hey, real quick, though, before we get to this topic, have you seen any of the Masters of the Air series that's on, I guess, Apple TV now? I caught the first couple episodes, and I thought they were pretty good. Yeah, I I enjoy I saw a little bit of the first episode so far. They just released this weekend, but it, it looks like it's going to be really good. I'm excited about it. Yeah, I ended up posting on one of our Facebook groups, I think it's called The Ready Room, to say, hey, anyone else see this? And a few people had some complaints about the story and the CGI and a few other things. I guess some of them have read the book, and I don't know about you, I think the book is always better than the movie adaptation of almost any story. But yeah, I just think it's a really gritty, frankly, way of of seeing just what life was like for those guys. And I stick by The Greatest Generation. I think, man, it's amazing what those people went through 80 years ago. Yeah, it truly is. I mean, the the stuff that they endured just to fly the airplanes, let alone deal with combat and all the things that were going on there. And then the home front. I mean, the whole package is just something that I really am just amazed at what they went through. So I'm looking forward to this adaptation. And I agree with you. You know, books are usually better, but, you know, there's nothing like sharing some time working through those episodes with my kids and family. And so it's a good experience, I'm sure. Well, so let's get to it. I mean, how did you first hear about Art Palmer? When I was the commanding officer at Whidbey Island, this was before COVID. I don't know if you remember that time Vaguely. in our in our lives. But this was September 2019. We were, his family was hosting his 100th birthday celebration back in 2019. And so they'd invited somebody from Whidbey Island to attend. And so I said, hell yeah, I want to go and I want to bring my family. And so we went over there and they had a hotel convention room reserved and 
all these people from the community there. And I showed up in my summer whites with my family and I was walking through the crowd, greeting people, talking with people. And I get towards the end of the room and, and there's Art Palmer standing there and just standing tall and really fascinating guy. I had a great conversation with them. And I was just really happy that my kids who are so young were able to have such a, a great conversation with somebody from that generation, a true World War II legend. Well, and speaking of that, didn't one of your kids uh, attend the interview with you and ask some questions, what, for a uh, school project or something? Yeah, that's right. So fast forward from 2019 to today, you know, I retired and I started working with you on the podcast. And in the back of my mind, I've had, hey, I got to reach out to Art Palmer's family and find out how he's doing and see if I can get him on the show. So I was really happy to go up there with my son a couple of weeks ago. It was, it was the Monday from Martin Luther King uh, weekend. And we went up there and right before we were going, I saw his teacher's weekly newsletter that said they were studying the Dust Bowl. And Art lived in the Dust Bowl and his family migrated because of the Dust Bowl out West. And so I was able to kind of coach Austin through his first podcast. And so we recorded and produced his first little podcast he shared with his class, which was really great. All right. Good stuff. And if Art was 100 in 2019, then he's got to be past 104 now. That's right. He is 104 and a half and still plugging away. Yeah, we're blessed to have him around. Terrific. Yeah, for sure. And so when you visited, I believe it was his daughter that was helping him? Yes. So he's got a daughter that lives around there and then another daughter, Mary, who was down from Alaska helping out. And she was there throughout the whole thing. She was great help in coordinating. And then throughout the couple hours that we spent there. And so she was really good for kind of highlighting some things and, and helping to guide the conversation. Okay. Well, and as I listened to the unedited interview, we can hear her in the background, but I'm guessing our producer, Daryl, will work his magic. And most of the time, whatever she was saying was just to kind of keep him going. So I think he mentions it anyway, so the listeners might not get to hear it. Yeah. So you went and, and sat down. And then before we get to the interview, you guys will mention a couple things I wanted to just clarify. One was Lei Chi, and I might have missed it. You you guys might have covered it, but is that a, like a city in Italy or, or where was that? Yeah. So Lecce is one of the towns in the boot of Italy down there. You know, I think it's the other thing for, for listeners, before you jump into this, I think it's really good to have a little bit of historical context where the heart of the story takes place. So, you know, the North Africa campaign had gone from 1940 to May of 1943. And then the campaign in Sicily that General Patton led all the way up to Palermo and then coming across to the Straits of Messina, which was Operation Husky, kind of nice nod to the runner-up national champions, the UW Huskies. But anyway, that that ended in the late summer of 43. And so then we're going to have Art heading into that area in early 44. And so the campaign to push the Axis forces up Italy is going on throughout that time period where he is they basically spend the first part of 44 just south of Rome doing offensives, trying to bust through the Axis powers just south of Rome. Rome's going to fall in June 4th of 44. Normandy happens June 6th of 44. And then the Russians are going to liberate Berlin near the end of his story in World War II in the POW camp in May of 45. So all good context for what's going to happen with his travels throughout. So back to your question, 
Lecce was one of the bases in the boot of Italy, which is called the Salentine Peninsula, which I learned in this. I didn't know that in the past. But that's where the 15th Air Force 98th Bomber Group had set up in Bari, Foggia, and Lecce during that time frame. And then another thing is you keep mentioning a book. So tell me more about that. Yeah. So some time ago, um, I don't know exactly when, but later on in his life, his wife decided to sit down and interview him and write a book. And so it's about 140 pages or so, about 100 of it are just her retelling his story from the interviews that she did with him. And it's really well written. And then the rest of it are all these poems and things that he brought back from the POW camp which were shared amongst the prisoners, which I hear about a little bit. So great details about his story. Again, kind of back to Masters of the Air. There's only so much we can cover in the interview. There's even more detail in this book and additional depth to his story and these poems and other artifacts of his experience in World War II, which are really great. Well, so we have not done it yet, but just before you and I hit record, you said that the family would avail that. It's it's a PDF, right? So it's a digital version to us and we can publicize that. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. They're they're very, really, really nice to allow listeners to experience it through that if you want to. So we'll, yeah. we'll work out how best to do that and uh, so others can share the depth of his story. Sounds good. Well, why don't we think that over while we listen to this interview between Matt Arney, Flounder, and Mr. Art Palmer, 104 years young. Here we go. Welcome, everybody. Today, I'm sitting with a legend, Art Palmer. Art lives up here in the Pacific Northwest. He was born in 1919. He endured the Dust Bowl. He moved to the Pacific Northwest. He joined the Army Air Corps and flew B-24s, flying 50 missions before having to step out of his airplane over Vienna, Austria, and then becoming a guest of the German government for the rest of the war. He recovered, and we're going to talk about all that stuff. Thank you, Art, for joining us on the Fighter Pilot Podcast. It's great to have you. Thank you. So, Art, can you give us a, a little background about where you came from, what life was like for you before you joined the service? Well, I was born in North Dakota, and we lived in South Dakota till I was 17. At that age, we followed cousins who had gone out to Yakima and picked fruit which we did, but transportation was not available other than the side door Pullman on, on a freight train. What's the side door Pullman? That's where you jump on free, and you don't, <laughs> you don't have to buy tickets. <laughs> and that was a means of transportation for thousands of people. We used to look across our pasture about a half a mile of railroad. And those people looking for jobs who were going east on top of the freight train. The next train would go west, and those people are looking for work going west. So we had cousins that had gone out west, and we heard about picking fruit. Wow. So that was because of the Dust Bowl? That was the Dust Bowl and the... The economy was so flat, too. So one day, my mother and my dad and I 
had the neighbors drive us 20 miles to Lemon, South Dakota. And there we got on a passenger train and paid a fare to go to Marmoth, South North Dakota. And we didn't want people to know we were, were hobos. <laughs> that was you and your whole family, right? No, just me and my mother and dad. You, your mother and dad. Okay. So then we got to heading your 20 miles from Lemon, I believe it was. And we got on the uh, freight train on an iron car. We got to the mountains and the hobo said, you need to get in a fruit care, they're insulated, which we did and went to the through the Rocky Mountains with the uh, first time I've ever been in the, in the mountains and I'm just sitting in that fruit car enjoying the trip and the new things that flash by. We got off in Spokane and got on a bus to Yakima. In Yakima, we got a hotel. In the morning, we were crossing the street, and uh, there was this army truck waiting for us. And I'm, I'm ignorant of it, but my mother says, I'll be goddamn, there's our cousins out from South Dakota. And they had an army truck. So we just got in the truck with them and went 15 miles of east of Yakima to Moxie to a hop farm that these cousins were working at. And we got a job picking hops. And we worked at that for probably six weeks that I worked. And then I had to think of school. And so my folks put me on a passenger train to, I think, Billings, Montana or someplace. And I got off the passenger train and uh, it was midnight or it was at nighttime. And I had, had supper and left the building and started walking down the street. And I had never paid for a meal in my life. And I realized that I hadn't paid the dollar for my midnight meal. So I turned around and put the dollar on the counter and went out to the railroad yards. And I settled down and went to sleep. And eventually I heard the hobos wrestling and making coffee and active. I asked one of them, does this train go to Billings, Montana? And uh, they said yes. So that was the roundhouse. And I got on the train and got from there to Missouri, Moorbridge, where, where I had a sister working. I got off there, had dinner, and uh, she got off shift, and the two of us hitchhiked the 85 miles to our home. And we got a ride with a guy that had a modified truck that had a hay rack on the back. He said, you can ride in the hay, but you can't ride in the cab with me. <laughs> so eventually we got to the place that our farm was and got off the truck, and we were home. And this is in Missouri? Yes. Okay. And so you finish up high school there, right? No. I had one year of high school in Yakima. And so then... Just to kind of a little context for listeners, your wife some years ago wrote an amazing capture of your whole story, which I was able to read. So reflecting on that, you went from where we just left your story to working at the VA in Washington, D.C., right? Yes. Before you joined the service. That wasn't so direct. No, I'm sure it wasn't direct. (laughs) (laughs) 
So what was it that got you to the VA and what was it that got you to join the service? If you worked for the government, you could transfer to another agency. And they had a job working as a technician in a uh, research lab. It was a wind tunnel. I applied for that job and I got the job. And I was so happy having my career going the way I wanted it. And the next day, this uh, engineer's clerk called and said, what's your draft status? I said, I'm not classified, but I don't know a reason in the world I wouldn't be 1A. Mm. So I lost my the job I just got. Because you would be eligible for the draft. Oh, that's So I was so angry, I went right down to the Air Force and signed up as an aviation cadet. <laughs> now, in yeah. the meantime, I had my one-year vacation and went back to Yakima. What, so what t- when was this? This was 1930, probably 6 or 37. Okay. So when did you actually uh, first put the uniform on? Well, I was signed up, and when I got back, the office had moved to New York from the pressure of the war. I went up there and enjoyed a couple of months there before they called me. And I went down to Nashville for installation into the service. So, yeah, your training takes you, and I think your wife mentions Montgomery, Alabama, Albany, Georgia, Greenville, Mississippi. Those are all training stations. Yeah, all different training stations. George Field, Illinois, Bigsfield, El Paso, all in like... 16 or 18 months, a lot of moving around. So when did you actually start flying? Well, that was when I got to El Paso. Was that the BT-13? Or was that... Well, a- well, I, I flew the BT-13 early on. I flew the uh, two-wing airplane, primary airplane, then I flew the BT-13, then I flew the twin-engine airplane, then I went to Biggs Field and met up with the B-24 Then I met the crew and started flying as though it was combat. So backing up, was it a choice to fly the B-24? No. No, it was just... No, early early on I signed up for multiple engines. The more I flew, I realized I should have picked fighter. (laughs) (laughs) So early on... You signed up for a multi-engine, but within that, you could have been B-17, B-24, B-25. You had no choice. No, but they needed the B-24 pilots. So we were losing a lot of b 20 So this is around 1942, right? Okay. So we're losing a lot of B-24s, and your story talks about like double training. The training that's normally given to pilots, the uh, War Department discovered that They weren't being trained well enough. So we went back and did the same flying training we had just finished. Wow. Just to make sure the training is in there. Do you feel like that was effective? Yes, it was. It was uh, unhurried now. And before, I was just jammed into the system. (laughs) When you were going through all that training, the war is going on in Europe and the Pacific. Were you feeling like you were going to be able to get there in time for the war, or were you feeling like this training's never going to end? 
and I'm going to miss playing no. a role in the war. No, I wasn't missing anything. I was enjoying the flying. <laughs> <laughs> Ready to go anywhere they wanted me. Yeah. Any kind of particular training flying story you wanted to tell? There was the cross-country trip that we made, and uh, I flew with the, uh, in a twin engine, and we were doing navigation at night. And he was a mess-up person, and I kept track of where we were going because I knew it, I'd be responsible for coming back. <laughs> he must have had some higher rank supporting him because he certainly wasn't a pilot and never even close to being a navigator. So I just took over in my mind and got my way back. And how were you doing dead reckoning, and did you have beacons that you were navigating no. off of? No. Just no. chart, visual, dead reckoning? Just, yes. Amazing. Then I did link training for navigators, and I, I flew, and he, they gave me the directions. Now, this is in a link trainer, and you've seen him in the displays. So a simulator. Yes. Where the navigator yeah. is telling you things and that gets you ready for that flying that you were yeah. going to do on the B-24. And by the way, we do have Patreon listeners. And so Niels Hansen, who's a lieutenant colonel in the Army, he's the one who asks the question, did you have the choice on flying the B-24? So thanks for that question. So in the B-24, I understand a crew was about 10 people. Is that right? Yes. What were the crew stations? Well, you've got two pilots. You've got a navigator. You've got a bombardier and two waist gunners and a tail gunner. And in some cases, a nose gunner. I understand that depending on the variant of B-24 had a nose gun. Is they that right? Quit, they quit the nose gunner eventually. Which of the B-24 variants did you fly? I have no idea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they all look to like and act the same. We'll talk about how they act. Oh, and this is a, a great B-24 model here. That is... So great. So as we look at the model here, so you had the two pilots. Yes. And the bombardier is sitting underneath. Yes. The nose gunner. When when they had the nose gunner. When they had the nose gunner. And then... Two the, waist gunners. Two waist gunners. And a tail gunner. Uh-huh. Engineer. Yeah, okay. And the engineer was, if the bombs got stuck, had to go out there on that catwalk, which was about this wide... And leave his parachute behind while he's untangling the mechanism that dropped the bomb. Oh, my goodness. I'd rather be the pilot. Thank you. So when were you actually assigned as a crew together with the crew that you knew that you were going to go overseas with? Was that in the middle of B-24 training or early or late? Well, after I was trained for the airplane, then I got trained for the bombing missions where everybody was there. And everybody was there at that yeah. point. Okay. So before we head over to Europe, well, in, in order to go to Europe at this point, when did you find out that you were going to Europe instead of the Pacific? No choice. Yeah. They just came and said, all 10 of you guys are going over to Europe. They just sent us to Kansas for marshalling. And then the next move was to, I think, Newport News, Virginia, I think. And then onto a ship. And then that one dumped us off at Casablanca. And then we hitchhiked 
to combat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, it was a British ship, I understand? Yes. That took you from Newport News to Casablanca. And then a little bit of time in Casablanca. And this was, uh, you did New Year's in Casablanca, yes. right? And this is the 1943 to 1944. So you're there right at that point. You stay a week or so in Casablanca. So it wasn't somebody saying, okay, and now you're going to get on a ship or a flight. You guys really had to find your way. Well, you, we hitchhiked. Yeah, you hitchhiked. <laughs> so, so how did you get from Casablanca to Italy then? Was it a ship or an airplane? No, no. It was a, uh, an airplane usually, which was going the direction we were. I'm, try- I'm trying to remember the place we spent the first night. So you're being assigned to the 98th Bomb Group. I guess you stopped in Tunisia, and then Foja, Foja province, but then in Lecce? Lecce. Yeah, Lecce? Yes, but that was uh, after we'd hitchhiked and spent the night at one of the bases between us and the trip away from Africa. Mm-hmm. So you, you're hitchhiking, you end up at somewhere in Italy, and then you end up finding your way to Lecce. Yes, and also, for context, so early, now we're very early in 1944, obviously the Africa campaign of World War II is done. It was over. And so now we're moving up. The Allies are moving up Italy, which is why you're now based yes. in Italy. But the Axis is still in northern Italy, right? Yes. The first important American base in Italy was at Foggia, and we were down on the heel of Italy. So we're over in Europe now, and at some point, what are you hearing as you approach doing the missions? What are you hearing from crews who were veterans in that? Most of them had an indifference to being in battle. It wasn't important to them. It was just get in an airplane and go. Get in and go because everybody's in this together, and we're just going to work through. And 50 missions was the goal, right? Well, that was the uh, chance to come home and get relaxed and go back and find someplace else to fight. So but you got a trip home. You got a trip home after 50 missions. So you're in Lechi. What kind of airplanes were flying out of Lechi? Was it just B-24s? Yes. No B-17s or 25s no. or anything like that? Okay. And then... I recall in the story you heard from crews who were shot down, who talked about... Well, they they had a crew come and visit us, and they had been shot down at Ploesti, which was 43, I think. And this this is their talking to us in January of 44, and they just described being on the ground with the partisans. The partisans kept moving them around for five or six months. Wow, five or six months Yeah, that the partisans... And they wanted to prove that the Americans were on their side. So they weren't in a rush to get the Americans back. They wanted... They were using the American crews as examples for their comrades. Interesting. So you have that in your mind as you start to do your first mission. So where were your missions? What was the... uh, You are flying in 1944 now. Well, we did fly some in northern Italy, and the day before the invasion from England, we flew to Rouen, France, which was a nine-hour flight up and back. 
and we did go to Ploesti more than once, but not the first time. So the mission up to support the Normandy invasion was nine hours long. Yes. Was that typical, or was that longer than normal missions? That was the only one that was ever that long. How long were the normal missions that you did? Well, you'd, you could cross over into Yugoslavia, and you could make a three- or four-hour mission, okay. and you could do some bombing in in Italy. Oh, up in northern Italy? Yeah. Did you support that? Was it Anzio and... Well, the, the, uh, I didn't go on the mission, but our crew was at Anzio. It, it was a uh, disaster for the Americans at Anzio, but the bombing changed the direction, and immediately the Americans walked to march to Rome. Yeah, my great-uncle was at Anzio. I'm sure he's very appreciative of that support. But let's talk about actually flying the B-24. What was it like to actually fly it. Was it a hard airplane to fly? Well, we had uh, servos that were small motors that were able to do some of the maneuvers. To help you out? Yeah. Did it have an autopilot? They had an autopilot. Did it work? Yes. But did you trust it? No. (laughs) (laughs) What altitude were you typically flying the missions? Well, most missions were probably twenty-four to 26,000. How did that compare to... Well, did you ever fly missions with like B-17s or 25s no. coming? You were only yes. B-24s. What was it like in the airplane up in the mid-20s? Was it... How was the temperature and the noise? And Well, we flew one mission and... Uh, just as part of the story, the squadron equipment that should have come from Africa was bombed in Italy. The boat that was bringing the equipment to to Italy was sunk. <laughs> and so we flew a mission to Regensburg, 51 degrees below zero, inside and outside the plane. Oh, my goodness. 51 below zero. Yeah with the uh, fighters on us, and we just, pilot did this. And that was just cotton gloves. Just cotton gloves. Did you, I heard that you guys had, like, suits that warmed you? No. No. We just had coveralls. Just coveralls. Wow. So that, that bombing that you said that took out your equipment, that's electric flight suits wearing those oh my goodness so what about the noise i heard that it was you know not a quiet it was pretty pretty quiet with your you guys had headsets yes and obviously communication so if you took the headsets off could you talk to each other or was it too noisy no we could talk with each other okay and sometimes with the headsets just lifted now did you there's two pilots so were you flying pilot, co-pilot, or did it go back and forth? How did that back work? Back and forth. Back and forth. And what was the role of the pilot versus the co-pilot in this airplane? He was in charge of the airplane and handling the controls. Like takeoff and landing was done from the left seat? Yes. One of our, our questions, somebody asked if you guys used the Norden bomb site, which you yes, the, the same bomb site. And so when you're making a bombing run, what was the piloting like at that point? Well, everybody takes their hands off the airplane and 
except the bomb site. <laughs> the bomb site's taken the plane over the target, not even the bomber. Not even the bombardier. It's the bomb yeah. site is running the airplane at that point. Sound of bombs away was the most beautiful sound you could hear. <laughs> I guess the opposite of that is the worst is, hey, we've got a bomb stuck because now your engineer's back there stamping on the bomb trying to get <laughs> it to come out. And well, <laughs> once in a while the bomb rack would fail and somebody had to go in there and they couldn't always wear their parachute going through that little framework. Because it was too narrow. So what kind of bombs... Like how many and what size bombs were you guys typically well, carrying? Well, we I can't remember exactly how many, but the 100-pound bombs were, you'd get a dozen of those in there, I think. They have racks that hold them and racks that let them loose at the same time. And then you could get up to a 500-pound bomb pretty normally. Mm. Do you remember how many 500-pounders you could carry? Or was it weight or was it like how many could fit well it was the racks and the space for them mm-hmm. and how did the airplane fly with full bombs like on that mission going up to france you couldn't tell the difference you couldn't tell the difference she was that good about just taking off and doing business yeah. so it was a good airplane you enjoyed flying yes. it there was one time they had a fire truck that followed you you're in there, and here's, here's the fire truck, and you stay parallel when you're taking off on the runway. This engine ran away, and that put you off the runway. And those guys in the fire truck jumped off and ran. But we got control of the turbo that was running away before we clashed with the truck. Oh, my goodness. So on every takeoff, the fire truck would be yes. going alongside. Yes. So it's so in this situation, it's with you going up the right side yes. as you're taking off. Off the left side. Did the engines go number one, two, three, four? Yes. Left to right. So your number four engine is the one that you've got a problem. So you're you're starting to veer off to yes. the right, and they jumped off the fire yes. truck. <laughs> but you guys got control <laughs> and were able to stop it. Yes. Oh, do you take out some other airplanes? I can't remember how it went. I think we just turned around and took a new run at it. Oh, okay. Got it fixed, and hey, let's try it again. Well, it fixed itself. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, how many airplanes were taking off for these missions together? Oh, probably uh, 12 to 16 would you take off out of Lychee and kind of circle up, or did you just take off and start? Well, you took off and joined the group. Overhead Lychee? Yeah. Okay. And then were you climbing up into the 20,000s before you guys started heading? No, we'd start heading. We we had the advantage that we could get over the Adriatic, and then we had a free right to make any maneuver we wanted. But if we were flying over land, you had to circle above the base. I see. If you're going to go up north on through Italy, then you got to circle all the way up over the base and then go. Interesting. So another listener, Kyle Delisle, said, I read in a book that the B-24 was difficult to fly if you just climbed to formation height, and the best thing to do to make it easier for the pilots 
was to get above the formation height, then make a slight dive down to your required altitude and keep the tail higher than the front of the fuselage. Do you recall any kind of... No. No? It was just all control to put you where you wanted to go. Uh Uh-huh. If you want to be at 25,000 feet... You'd stay loose until you get to the top. Formation-wise? Yeah. Until you get to where you want to be. And then, so what was the, like, the out of 12 to 16 airplanes, how did the formation kind of look? Was it lead was lower and everybody else was higher, or what did it well, look it like? Well, it was be three of these airplanes, three airplanes, three airplanes. Okay, so groups of threes. Yeah. And then in different altitudes? No, no. same altitudes. Same altitudes, just running right across. Jevin Diva has a, a fun question. What were some of the colorful or memorable names of the bombers you flew? Did you guys name your bombers? No. No? You didn't but, have but, the nose art? But the crews that had flown earlier than we did had names on the bombers. Do you know why that went away? It was less uh, intimate, I would say, as we became larger numbers. I remember one name, Strawberry Bitch. was there art on the nose to go with that there was i don't know if there's art on this nose or not on this model it looks like a bald eagle on this model we have here in front of us strawberry bitch well that that would be an interesting story (laughs) i'm sure (laughs) what were some of the you 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 talked about an emergency when you were taking off what about in-flight emergencies there was one where you lost a couple engines? Yes. What, what happened with that? We were able to make the same bomb run over the Brenner Press and get away to the Adriatic, get over the Adriatic. Which engines had you lost? They were both right. Both the right engines. So yes. you're, you're only running on the left engine. Well, we've got, we got some power. Some power there. But we were forced to go down about 7,000 feet from 20,000 because that engine wouldn't push it. So the rest of the formation is up? Yes. And you're sitting down there? We're the sitting duck. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Like how much time before the bombing run did you lose these engines? Do you remember what it was from? Well, I can't tell you what it was that caused it, but we were in the bombing run before we had the trouble. I see. So you were already kind of, hey, we're committed. Let's do this. Yes. And, and deal with this engine problem after. Right. Did it stay that way all the way until landing? Yes. How often did you guys experience German fighter opposition or Italian fighter opposition? Well, we were a privileged group. We were in a group from North Africa, and the Germans knew it. They knew that we were the most experienced bombers, and they stayed away from us. Once in a while, a single airplane would come up. And how often did you guys lose a bomber in missions? Well, it wasn't very often. We were one of the most experienced bomb groups, and the the experienced fighter pilots stayed away from us. And then even from ground fire? Yes. Did you guys lose any on your missions from ground fire? I can't remember it. I went up further ahead of the other planes, and then the new pilots would be back here. Nick Forster, who used to fly tornadoes in the Royal Air Force, so he asked, which of the Luftwaffe fighters gave you the greatest cause for concern? 
ME-109. Those are pretty prominent. Yeah. And in the story that your wife put together, there's all these poems and stuff that we'll get to oh, yes, when we yeah. talk. I've got the book of the poems. Yeah. These are all poems that were created in the POW camps. And yes. you guys were able to share them and capture them. And one of them I read, this is the Ode to the P-38. Yes. That I really enjoyed. I'll just read the first few lines. Oh, Hedy Lamar is a beautiful gal. Madeline Carroll is too. But you'll find, if you query, a much different theory among any bomber crew. For the loveliest thing of which one could sing, this side of the heavenly gates, is no blonde or brunette of the Hollywood set, but an escort of P-38s. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. That is a good one. So how often did you have P-38s joining you? Well, not too often. We were a crew that was ahead of the supply. Do do you recall about like how far from the front lines as the lines moved up Italy? I mean, you're you're ahead of the supply. You're kind of on the edge out there, right? Well, it varied. You said fighters weren't based at Leche. A, a lot of the P thirty eight stuff we hear about is based in England. Yes, flying into Western Europe from there. So you didn't have the the pleasure of their company much. Maybe when you flew up to that, when you did the Normandy? Well, we we didn't go to Normandy, but we went to Rouen, France. That's the very south end of France. You started in January of 1944. You flew some flights in around the time of Normandy, and then we're going to get to your 50th flight. So in about six months, you flew 50 flights. What did you do on the days when you weren't flying? Well, we were on the heel of Italy, and the doctor in, in our squadron and another friend that was a pilot would go to an orphanage. And when, when the bomber would land, the lunch tailings that were left would go under this plane. We went there to those planes and got all those K-2 rations. And we, we went to an or, uh, orphanage with them. And those kids would just eat that stuff like candy. Wow. How far away from the base was it? Like 10 minutes or 40 minutes? Or? No. It was uh, probably a half a mile. Oh, half a mile from the base. Just to walk out, take all the leftover rations and, and interact with the kids there. That's really wonderful. If you've always dreamt of a career in aviation while keeping your feet on the ground, then Air Corps Aviation is the place for you. Since 2008, Air Corps Aviation has been at the forefront of modernizing the airworthiness of legacy aircraft dating back to World War II. Their dedicated team specializes in numerous aerospace disciplines, including manufacturing, fabrication, restoration, and support, all while incorporating state-of-the-art technology. In 2024, Air Corps Aviation is expanding its team with job openings in engineering and computer-aided design, quality, fabrication, and restoration. Live where others vacation in northern Minnesota while enjoying paid time off, health insurance and savings accounts, retirement plans, life insurance, and best of all, most Fridays off. If you're ready to be a part of a team fulfilling dreams through the preservation of historical aircraft, visit aircoreaviation.com slash careers and take your first step towards an exciting career in aviation. That's aircoreaviation.com slash careers. Visit today. What other kind of activities did you guys enjoy? They had a uh, amphitheater 
that was uncovered in 1937. This was the early 40s. So we went and looked at the ruins that hadn't been worked over yet. And we did take a trip in the back of a cattle hauling truck someplace one time, probably a lunch. Did you ever fly non-combat, like to check out an airplane for maintenance or do anything else like that? I did with the, a pilot, and, and uh, they had a beach right close to the base, and he buzzed the beach <laughs> and was grounded. He was grounded. But being grounded in combat has no effect on anybody's life. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's what we call flat hatting, and I can't believe back then that there was like discipline for that back then to yeah. ground somebody. Wow. So you're a crew together. You're getting up to the 50th mission, but I'm sure due to people's different, maybe somebody was sick at a time or something, you all didn't get to 50 missions together, right? So what was your 50th mission? What was the setup for this? Oh, my, can I remember? You were in another airplane, but not a pilot is yes. what I remember, right? Oh, it just took a guest trip. A guest trip? Yes. Yeah. That was the one I got shut down in. Yeah. <laughs> what was your role in this? Well, I'm, I'm taking over for a gunner. Where were you in the formation on this flight? Well, I think it was probably close to Tail End Charlie. Tail End Charlie? <laughs> okay. That's where they got us. And so you're flying to Vienna from the boot of Italy. What happened on this mission? Well, they, they lined up for the target and let their bombs out. And then we got a hit on, hit on the nose. From ground flak. fire? Yeah, from flak. And, the, and then the insult was that when the Germans were interrogating us, they said it was a 16-year-old kid that shot you down. <laughs> oh, no. Even a blind squirrel can find a nut sometimes. So the, the bombs had been released, and then you're hit. And so what was it like in the airplane? How much time did you have before you decided well, you had to step away? I don't know how much time I had, but I took no time to have a decision. The crew was jumping out of the pilot's exit, and I'm going to go out the window as soon as I see the crew leaving. Oh, so the pilots left, and yeah. you're like, well, I'm out. And you were wearing, uh, you're, you're wearing the parachute at the yes. time, so it was just a matter of stepping out the yes. window. What was that experience like coming down to earth? Well, I'm trying to decide. We had bombed a factory at Vienna, and I'm looking across the Danube River, and I'm uh, holding out on opening my chute, and I'm trying to decide whether I should go across the river or not. And then I'm trying to decide how I can keep from going in the river. <laughs> <laughs> And all this time, I'm coming down with my legs crossed, and I'm using the legs to give my direction. Because the parachute was not steerable, right? Well, you... this is before the parachute. Oh, this is before the parachute, before you open the parachute. Yeah. Okay. So I delayed quite a long time opening that chute, and then when I did, it wasn't very long before I was on the ground. Because... You were concerned about highlighting yourself in the air, floating yeah. down yeah. to an unwelcome reception. Did you have much time before nightfall once you were on the ground? 
Well, I had all the time I needed. Yeah. I ran into another crew and part of my crew. I took two men off my crew. And I backed off from the other men and went through the swamp by the edge of the Danube. And then I spent the afternoon laying there. And then when it got dusk, I got up and started going across a wheat field. And pretty soon we stubbed our toes on a, a mound of dirt out in that field. That was the uh, gun emplacement. That was a gun emplacement, you guys. <laughs> in the middle of the night, you ran across. So I got a deer to around and then headed away. We came to a high spot in the farmland, and there was a uh, Krieg light up there. And I thought, well, I could smash this, but then I leave a trail. So we walked off to the right and started for, I think, eight-day travel. Eight days. And where were you trying to get to? Well, we hoped to get in Yugoslavia area because we've talked with some pilots that had been shot down over Ploesti, and the Yugoslavs helped them. They kept them for a long time, but they still yes. helped them. Yes. And what were you using to navigate on the ground? Well, we had a thumb compass. <laughs> <laughs> we, we had an escape pack, each of us. So a little compass in the escape pack, some ground well, maps. Well, there's a, there's a map of France and Normandy. There's a map of, I think, Central Europe. And there's a map of the area we were flying in. And then food, water? Well, we had a plastic sack for water. But no food? Well, they had some type of nutrition, but not very much. And did you guys come across any? Because you're out for, you said, eight days? Yeah. No no food. No food. We did come across some wild strawberries, maybe a tablespoon of them. I bet they tasted good. Well, <laughs> no connection to the strawberry bitch. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> and so then you're out for eight days. You're making way. Do you know, like, how many miles you guys traveled? Well, I would say that we went at least at 150 miles. And then what happened? Well, on the eighth or ninth day, and it was raining, we came upon a building in the mountains, and there were three teenage girls in there who had been planting trees. They gave us a little bit of bacon cracklings. We went back in the woods and talked it over, and we've already traveled eight or nine days without food. And we decided that these three teenagers are probably separated from society generally. We followed them down a trail, and this guy and his wife and a horse came off a little farm that they had down there. And he said, Nix Manjari, no food in German and no food in Italian. Well, I could have taken that as a warning. We'd been hungry for too long, and so we followed them down a trail, and pretty soon my navigator said, look there, and it said gendarmerie. So that was our last hope of getting away. So once you saw the gendarmerie, they saw you? So it was no. no, until we walked in, they didn't know anybody was around. It was a, a German station. They put us in a bedroom, 
and took our map and our compass and my silver dollar and threw it on the bed, my lucky silver dollar. So then they went out and asked, called headquarter. When they did that, I grabbed the map and took the one from France and threw it in the one we needed. Oh, you swapped them out? Yeah. Yeah, so you could keep the one for the area. There are a few little parts of your story that I read that you were a very clever, sly guy, weren't you? Yes. And so you're there for a little bit, and then they take the three of you off to another camp, right, or prison or something? Yes, well, then those girls that we were talking to took us to the police, and then we became prisoners. And we uh, we were on the train, and they took my crew down to talk with the prisoner that had his leg amputated two weeks before. I didn't have a chance to warn them before they left. But anyhow, then they took me in. And I'm sure he was just a German actor. This prisoner yeah. who had the leg amputated? Yeah. So you're on the train. Yes. And they're taking you in one at a time to talk to this, yes. quote, prisoner. I see. And then we got to Frankfurt on the Rhine. I'm sure that was eventually the uh, interrogation center. And, of course, they inter- interrogated the crew first, and then me. So was it still just the three of you, or were yes. there more prisoners? No, just well, the three. Three of us, until we got to Frankfurt. And so is this, at one point, you're picking the ceiling apart to make a hole? Well, after they interrogated me, and they separated the enlisted men from the officers. So I don't know what happened then. But this interrogator said, well, we have ways of making you talk. Then a a guard with a rifle and a bayonet and a huge stature came in and took me around the corner and put me in a cell. That cell is uh, probably, oh, maybe four feet wide or five feet wide and seven feet deep. It's got a frosted window in it. Anyhow, they had a little radiator on the wall. And I got on that radiator and went up and discovered there was a little sliver of glass at the corner of the window. I took the putty off and got the sliver out. Now I could look outside. I felt like I was partly released. Just by having one little peephole of the outside. What did you see out there? Was it field or? Just alone. Yeah, just a lawn, just enough to have something to, to, that you... So then you ended up in Berlin. Was this in Berlin, this one solitary, or was this in Frankfurt? This one was Frankfurt. Okay. The major interrogation center. I see. How long were you there? And Well, I was in four days. Then they uh, put us in a big room with all the other prisoners, airmen, I'm sure, and gave them smokes and let them circulate in this room. So I'm sure they had German workers listening. More actors. Yeah. As people try to let down their guards, maybe. Yes. Interesting. I considered them all Germans. I didn't say a word. That's a good mindset. What were the conditions? So it was just one room, and did you sleep on the floor, or was it a bunkhouse? or? Well, the... The single cell was so short-lived 
It didn't have bed facilities. And then they shipped you off different places, different camps? Yes. They separated the enlisted men from the officers. And then the officers went by train through Berlin to a little village on the Baltic Ocean called Barth. You can still find that in the in some encyclopedias that it has pictures of it and it has other description of Barth. And so that's where you ended up? Yes. So then what was life like and and did you were there other people in the camp who you knew? Well, when you got to the camp, the uh, prisoners that were inside formed a, a line on each side of where you'd come through the gate to see if they knew anybody or if there was new information out there. That was the reception that a new prisoner gets. I see. So you went by train? Yes. And then as you're walking through the gates, the prisoners all yes. line up. And so do you remember walking that line? Oh, yes. yeah. I just uh, am resigned to uh, dealing with whatever's going to come. So you, your last mission was June 26, 1944. This is now July in your final POW camp. And at this point, obviously, the Normandy invasion has happened. Did you feel like the tide of the war was in your favor, but it was going to be a long wait? Pretty much. Yeah. And so were there all Americans, Brits? Well, in my camp, it was all Americans. Inside a fence line, just multiple buildings? And what did it look like? Well, I would say that it was probably... An enclosure with seven barracks, and I can't tell you how much that would require. And then you lived in a barracks with a yes. bunch of people. And so what did you guys do with your time? What uh, what things could you do? Well, let's see. Mary, can you get this box and open it up? Yes, I will. So here's some insignia, including some pilot wings. We cast those in lead. You cast them in lead. Yeah. So you went on eBay. You bought a foundry. No. <laughs> you had Amazon no. deliver it. The, uh, <laughs> the area we were in was a probably a tide-washed place and not very wide, maybe a mile long. And they had beach sand outside the window. And we got that and made little boxes and cast that. Hmm. Where'd you get the metal from? Oh, for me, uh, they had a powdered milk can that we would get that had a seam in it. They took the lid out of that seam. So you're extracting the lead yes. from the seam of a powdered milk can. Yeah. It takes patience and time, and you had both. Yes. That's amazing. And so you were able to cast pilot wings and insignia... Yes. All through this process. Somebody came into the camp with the insignion. Uh-huh. I ditched mine. You ditched yours in the evasion process? Yes. Wow, that's amazing. What about escape attempts? Did people try escapes? I think it was probably our primary need to try to escape. Was that by uh, tunneling mainly? or? Well, when we went in there, they had... The Germans were using a spray from a hose to destroy a tunnel that had been made that went outside the fence. 
but they they knew before you crawled under the fence that you were there. They might have had some seismic equipment to monitor for motion there. Interesting. But as you said, it was a need for you guys to try. Yes. Like mentally that, hey, we're still going to try to get out of here. It's like one colonel said, they're still your enemy. We see where prisoners can end up saddling, you know, kind of conversing with the captors and stuff like that. But you guys kept that barrier between you. I was hoping that everybody did. I was determined to keep my mouth shut. So what other activities did you, were you able to, I don't know, play any sports or? I've got a book someplace. I studied German while I was in there. Oh, okay. How did it go? It was a good way because you had the Germans to visit with. So you were able to, like, practice yes. your German while keeping it an appropriate conversation. Yes. Yeah, especially with your limitations on German. But did you get conversant in German? Could you? I could get by. And then what was your guys' awareness of, like, how the war was going? How did you get that information? Well, we had a... Uh clandestine radio somewhere and every every evening you would get a um, a newspaper and that was the uh, Canadians that were prisoners there early had a little uh, chocolate container about this long and about this wide and about that deep and that was the means of transportation for the news and every night that little tin can would come over the fence with the newspaper of the day. Over the fence from? From the next compound. Oh, okay. And from headquarters. Huh. The prisoner headquarters. Yes. I see. And then, was it like handwritten? Or typed. Typed. The high-ranking officers had an office. American officers. The radio, did somebody... Well, somebody had a radio. I don't know where it was. Yeah, or how they got it in. The Germans didn't know where it was. (laughs) (laughs) That's for sure. So you were getting this nightly news flash. um, Yes. And so getting an understanding about how the war was progressing. So you were feeling, were you feeling like a sense of, okay, this is coming to an end? Yes. And so what was the concern? Because I, you know, reading stories about, people in Japanese POW camps, there was a lot of concern that they would be killed instead of turned over. No, this was the Geneva Convention atmosphere. So you felt that when you were liberated, that that it would be a... Did you know the Russians were going to get there ahead of? Yes. Yeah, so you were expecting the Russians. When you could even hear their shells, their big guns, before they got there. And so... What happened when they showed up? Was it a big force? Or? Well, they they came in an American jeep, and they said, "If you're if you're not prisoners, tear the fence down." So they had a few prisoners that tore a hole in the fence, and went to the little town. Where were the Germans? Were the guards and everything? Well, the guards left the day before the Russians showed up. Ah, okay. So then you guys are sitting there and... Well, we're, we're under the command of the high, high-ranking high officer in our camp. So the Russians show up, you guys tear a hole in the fence, and 
now you can kind of walk around and yeah and so what did you do with your time and how long was it until well i and another prisoner saw a little rowboat and we took that rowboat across the water this was kind of a peninsula where the camp was and you had to be out of you couldn't be in out on the street after dark and we went in this building that is housing uh women prisoners of war, like Polish and some of those others. And we ended up spending the night in the furnace room at that building. Oh, really? And then the next day we walked around the south ends of the peninsula and back to our camp. You had to walk all the way back? Yeah. Leaving the camp, at some point did Americans show up to help you leave, or how did you guys actually leave the area? Well, the Russians came first. Yeah. Somebody ordered the people to dig the hole and take a fence down in an area. Then a few people got to town and found booze, and some of them went as far as a chicken house and got eggs and then chickens. Ah, a delicacy, (laughs) huh? Because what had you been eating while you were a prisoner? Well, we were down pretty low at the end, but it was a, uh, a fifth of a loaf of dark whole wheat or rye bread. And you divide that up to have have four meals. Wow, that was it. Yeah, no potatoes. Well, or... one time they brought some pickled herring in. This is early on, and most of the Americans wouldn't touch it. And of course, I demonstrated it. And when we were in, before we were in the permanent camp, I knew I had to get rid of that food before I get any more. And so I dug the a hole in the ground just outside the tent and poured it in there and covered it. (laughs) Just to get rid of it. Yes. Yeah. But I ate as much as I could hold. So I'm getting the sense that, you know, you had to hitchhike your way from Casablanca into Lechi. It sounds like you almost had to hitchhike your way out of camp once it was done. How how did you get back west? They had the Russians over on the camp and then... The Americans ran over the camp, and uh, when the Russians ran over it, they provided food. They slaughtered some cattle. When the Americans came, you got your usual K-2 rations, and uh, I think we were there about a week before the 8th Air Force provided transportation to get us to... There was a stopover, and then... We went to Camp Lucky Strike, which was the place where they're going to send you home from. This is in France? In France. And then I think I saw there were like 85,000 or so prisoners there from all the camps converging to get back home. So it was going to take a while to get everybody back home. So what did you do with your time? First of all, I got $150 of my money. Uh Uh-huh. And then I hitchhiked to Paris, and I got dumped off about five miles from Paris. And so somebody else came along and took me down to the American headquarters in Paris. And I'd heard about other prisoners coming through that process. And so I asked for some, for my money. I got $150, and I got a chit for a room for two or three nights. Then I went to the camp. We stood in line for the bathroom. Then we stood in line with our mess kit. 
then we got our food, then we stood in line to wash the mess kit, then we had to get in line for the lunch. And this is the way the day went. And I thought, this is going to be a long time. So I hitchhiked back to Paris and got the money again, but I didn't get the room, so I, I went to a private pair party to buy the room. I spent another three or four days there. And then I had uh, orders to go to England, I think. And I went to the uh, people that ran the airline and tried to get on that. And they said, no, you you have to uh, have an air passage. So I went back to the headquarters and told them my story. And I got passage on that airplane. To London. And Yeah. Then I, then I got an additional night of sleep, and the airplane took me to London. And then, at some point, you get on a ship to come across, well, right? I took advantage of the tour, a tour of London, and then I went down to Bournemouth, which was a resort on the water. And then I can't remember what the departure location was, but I got engaged in that and got transportation to be shipped home, and I got on the Queen Elizabeth. On the Queen Elizabeth, <laughs> <laughs> in all its glory, playing shuffleboard and watching shows? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> Shipping a lot of people back home at that point, right? Yes. And we got to um, New Jersey from the ship. So did you see the? Uh, did you see New York Harbor and the Statue of Liberty? or? Yes. What was that feeling like? Well, that was amazing. Yeah. So a nice, beautiful day to welcome you back yes. to America. That's amazing. At what point did you start figuring out that you were having physical ailments from this time? I think probably on the way home. I hadn't got home yet before I started to have back pain. And so you're, you're landing in New Jersey, and now you're... Your goal is to get to where? You want to go to Yakima or? Well, I'd talked with some other prisoners before I left, and they were all meeting in uh, Indianapolis, I think. And I I had to cancel that and change it to, in order to stop at Indianapolis, I have to put my destination as Florida. (laughs) (laughs) Anyhow, I changed that back to Yakima. Okay. And got the train passage Yakima. How is discharge process working and your medical condition that you started dealing with? I had a lot of terminal leave built up for the time I'd been in the service. And I also had started to have back pain. I went into the firing center in Yakima and they sent me to Madigan Hospital. And I went in there and it seemed like nobody was doing anything for me. So then I went to Santa Ana, California for total discharge. And I had an uncle in Long Beach, which was right next door, came and visited me. He said, you stick to that treatment for that back before you get out of the service. So I did. And I was put in the hospital for maybe a year. Was this still down at Long Beach or Santa Ana? Yeah, it was a nucleus of facilities at Santa Ana. So you were there for almost a year? Yes. At what point did were you told that you had spinal tuberculosis? That was the diagnosis, right? Yes. Yeah. 
when I hadn't been told that, I don't don't think. I think I went home, and I think I went to the firing center, which was the medical facility for military, and they had St. Elizabeth do x-rays over my back, and that's when I found out I had spinal tuberculosis. What is spinal tuberculosis? Because it's just not something you run across much nowadays, right? When I was a kid, my folks had bought some cattle. I was probably two or three years old, or even younger. And they got some cattle that had brucellosis. They got rid of those, and my health was vital enough that, that it just didn't bother me. But after the pigeon camp and the malnutrition, my back started to report injury. And so what, what's the treatment for it? Well, the treatment was then bed rest. So after the first year of bed rest, I'm looking around and there's no end to it. Were you in a body cast at this point? That's when they put me in the body cast. So I was in that quite a while. Were you still in the service or had you been discharged? No, I was still in the service. Okay. So you're still being cared in the service. And then at some point, you end up having a surgery for this? Yes. They fused seven vertebrae together. Fused seven together? Yeah. My goodness. And then what was the... Was it a... Quick is probably not the right answer, but did you recover? I, I recovered well, but I also qualified for retirement, military retirement. Oh, okay. So, wow. What a story, Art. And that just takes us through your first 24, 25 years of your life. So you're medically retired from the military. So then you ended up settling down here in Pacific Northwest and, well, not settling down because you ended up finding your wife and marrying and having a great family. And And I did take a job for Endo Laboratories as a pharmaceutical rep, and I retired from them. So you got a a degree from the University of Denver because some of your treatment was out in Colorado too, right? Yes. Yeah. And then, obviously, you lived an amazing life, a lot of friends, great community. Yes. Did you do any flying afterwards? No. Any part of the story that kind of we missed that you want to finish up with? Or maybe as you reflect back, I know that there's some lessons that you've learned in your life. Well, I think I felt somewhat guilty knowing that I was physically comfortable with my life and yet having a retirement paycheck. Because you're not somebody who's going to go down easily, even with seven vertebrae fused together you felt like you could handle yourself I'm sure I do get that one of the things in your story that I read was about when a lady visited you and there was some little bird oh yes yeah what what was that about well that that was uh when I was in the hospital this occupational therapy worker came to the door she had this little uh, x-ray paper bird of paradise I was at the point where if somebody wanted to do some favor for me I would say I would think in my mind nobody's going to do a favor for me until I get out of here but this yell came through the uh, the door and she had this little bird of paradise wow that is beautiful made out of that x-ray. was made out of x-ray paper 
And when she showed up with this, I thought, they're trying to do something for my mental health. Because my first thought was, you get out of this room with that piece of x-ray. <laughs> wow. Anyhow, that brought me to the realization that I was a chronic complainer, and my life has to change. And I, my attitude and philosophy both clicked, and I, forever after I've entertained what other people are interested in, and not personally. Yeah, one of the things that I came to start saying is that to choose to be happy. And so it sounds like that little bird of paradise helped you to choose to be happy. And, and that's uh, very important when we have those moments in our lives. So thanks for sharing that. Uh, one of the things we do on the Fighter Pilot Podcast is we talk about call signs. Did you guys as pilots, you didn't use call signs, did you? But did you have nicknames and things like that? No, we, we didn't have special signs. Not even some of those 1930s nicknames that you guys used in your childhood. No. no. <laughs> well, that's great. Well, it's been a true pleasure, Art. Thank you so much for taking the time and welcoming us into your home and sharing your story with our listening audience out there. It's yes. truly remarkable. We still wish you many, many wonderful years to come. Well, thank you. Wow, Flounder, that was amazing. It's just, I, you must have been just pinching yourself to be able to sit and get the stories from the guy who lived it. I mean, 104 and a half. I loved his stories about jumping trains and hitchhiking and called himself a hobo. Wow, that must have been a lot of fun. It was, it was. Like I said, he is, he is quite the character, all the way from his roots in the Dakotas. You know, they showed me a picture of him sitting on top of his horse that he'd ridden into the town when he was a teenager and hitched it up at the hitching post and all that kind of stuff to, like you said, riding trains with his family to head West and, you know, all the hardships there, let alone all the hardships that we talked about and the adventures that we talked about in flying and then evading and then surviving the POW experience. And even, you know, we didn't really get into it too much, but there was a lot of that same kind of adventure just to be able to get from Europe all the way back home. So amazing, really great opportunity. Yeah, that was not a quick process, as I understand, for a lot of the GIs, particularly some of the POWs, but sounds like he did get taken care of with his back and everything else. Yeah, golly, just incredible stories. And I just, I loved actually that in some cases you would ask him a question and he just said, I don't remember. I mean, good grief. <laughs> I barely remember things from last year. So come on. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You know, and part of it was, of course, for all the aviators out there, was looking to get a little more insight into flying the B-24. And there's a great episode on the B-24 in, in the earlier library of Fighter Pilot Podcast. So I do recommend people go back and listen to that. And that's going to get more detailed about flying the B-24. You know, his in conversation kind of afterwards, his daughter described him retelling it as if you're sitting on the front porch of a farmhouse trying to fly a farmhouse. So there is a lot of nuance to it that we didn't get into, but you know, he's lived through a lot. And I think he just categorizes a lot of things as it just is what it was. And that's, you know, that's how it was. And that's what we did. <laughs> yeah. Well, 
uh, I just think it's great that we're able to capture these stories. And, you know, it's not about the B-24. It's about Art Palmer and his and his mates. And so I thought you did a great job with the discussion. So thank you for doing it and contributing here for the show. I guess, again, right, just hearing his stories are amazing. But the one sort of takeaway that I took from this as far as what's still relevant today, and I haven't been through now SEER training in a long time, but survival, evasion, resistance, escape, you and I both did it. Of course, the world situation is different, and unfortunately, captured people aren't treated too well in today's era. But I remember the training I went through, you know, he talked about actors. And I thought, wait, yeah, that makes sense. Like they had some of the staff at Sear School kind of mingle in with us and, and, you know, try to spoof us into giving away more than we should because they were, or trying to get us to talk to them if we didn't talk to our interrogators. But some of the resistance techniques as well and communicating and just the human need for something productive to do and to be entertained. So making wings and everything he talked about, all that really resonated with me. I just thought that was a really terrific part of the story. Yeah, it, it truly is. When you read his story, when you listen to his story, just all those elements, like you said, that we we learned about and and hearing him talk about it, I think to myself, I think, would I really have the patience to sit there and try to make a little foundry to forge wings or, you know, there's other people in the camp who were able to build radio and maintain a radio and, and keep it from the Germans. And even the escape attempts, the constant and it's that focus of I am a prisoner and my job is to try to do my best here and resist and escape. And there's a, a few other escape stories that we didn't really have time to get to, but I think it's still relevant today. And so I, I welcome listeners to have heard that and experience it through him. Absolutely. And I think to address your concern, maybe you would or wouldn't have the patience, but you certainly would have the time. And that's one thing I've taken from my studies of prisoners is, man, you got to do something to keep your brain occupied. So they used to, I guess, have little classes to teach different languages or, and right, and he'd learn some German. But there was a guy uh, I read about in Vietnam who sort of mapped out I don't know what it was, some house he wanted to build, like just down to the details in his mind, you know, just to keep his mind occupied. So yeah, that's what you got to do. Well, so I was thinking about it though, this book that you said they've written, really a PDF, but we'll call it a book. I think what we should do is attach it to the post on our Patreon page that will have this audio episode there. And you don't have to support us. It'll be available for free because whenever the audio episodes go out to the public, so do our Patreon posts that have that same content. So head on over to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. Search for the Fighter Pilot Podcast. Look for the post that will be not blurred if you're not a member. And it'll have obviously a title that I haven't yet settled on, but it'll be about Art Palmer and look for the attachment. And we'll just throw it there if you think that works there, Flounder. Yeah, I think that's great. And I think people are going to enjoy reading through it. And uh, so that's good that we can provide it. And if while you're there, you like uh, what you see, if you want to suggest, or if I may suggest rather, you considering supporting the show, we'd be happy to uh, have your contributions. And it also gives you early access to stuff. And there's some other insider baseball that's available there. So please do go check it out. All right, Flounder. Well, thanks again for doing that. What else are you working on? I've got some few ideas that I'm working on. I think the one that I'm really excited about and is starting to come together is this is the year of the 100th anniversary of the first aerial circumnavigation of the globe. 
And so it was Army Air Services before the Army Air Corps. They launched off starting in Seattle, going around the world, starting in, I think it was, they launched in April, early April, and they finished up in September in Seattle. And there is a tremendous amount of adventure that goes with that story. Airplane crashes in the mountains of Alaska and in the North Atlantic and logistics and all kinds of fascinating aspects. So I'm going to see what I can what can I do with that. I think that'll be a lot of fun. Sounds like it. Yeah, that would be uh, terrific. And then I think you have some F-14 uh, guy you're maybe trying to nail down to come on and tell some good stories. Yep. So there's a couple other folks that I'm reaching out to to see if they want to come on and tell their story. And so I, I look forward to providing some more content for our listeners out there and enjoying it along the way. Well, I certainly appreciate it because it takes the heat off of me for one week anyway. <laughs> We're still trying to do videos every other week. In fact, next week we'll be back with episode 184 with a former F-14 pilot in Rio. You probably know these guys. Did you know uh, Yarko? And wasn't Yarko flying with you guys? He was uh, in the Dimebacks right before I got there. Yep. All right. So Yarko and Combat will be along. They're going to talk about some of military aviation's best practices, briefing and debriefing and checklists and SOPs and all that, and specifically to their jobs post-Navy, how those best practices are applicable to other industries outside of aviation and defense. So that'll be here next time. And yeah, like I said, Flounder, it, we're trying to do the audio thing once a week. We do the video thing every other week. So you've helped uh, fill in some of the gaps. Thank you. And I look forward to the other stuff that you produce. Well, that's great. Well, I look forward to listening to that conversation next week. I think it's going to be great with Combat and Yarko. Great people doing great things out there. But in the meantime, I'll see what else I can do. Sounds great. All right, Flounder. Well, thanks to you for getting this awesome interview today with Mr. Art Palmer. And thanks to everyone for tuning in to the Fighter Pilot Podcast. Appreciate your support and listenership. And we'll see you next time here on the show. So long. You've been listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, the internet show that explores the fascinating world of air combat. Visit our website, fighterpilotpodcast.com, for a blog, a glossary of the terms used on this show, and a shop page featuring unique military aviation-themed books and apparel. Check out our YouTube channel to watch hundreds of military aviation-themed videos. And for exclusive content, head on over to our Patreon page. Thanks for listening. Thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran.